lovely stuff. Brilliantly read all the way through. Not a word out of place. If you've got a Bible, do have it open to that passage. I think we get kind of, I don't know whether that's lazy is the word, but I think because it's on the screen, people don't bring their Bibles to church. I would really encourage you, if you've got a Bible, bring it to church so you can check up on what the minister's saying is actually what's in there. And also it gives you the opportunity to flick to other passages that are, are, are referred to. But So do bring your Bibles to church. We used to, um, in our youth group, we used to have a water pistol. If, if somebody didn't bring their Bible, we'd go around and squirt them with them. We'd say, you will be shot if you don't bring your Bibles to church. But anyway. <clears throat> so when I first started out, so if you, if you got it, it's chapter 10 in Matthew. Um, when I first, or it could be on your phone, maybe. Another thought, but don't look at the WhatsApps. <laughs> That's the temptation, isn't it? Um, when I first started out in my working life, I was a salesman. And uh, I worked for a large insurance company. Uh, so I was an insurance salesman. And um, uh, we used to go around uh, to different brokers, the insurance brokers, and try and persuade them to use our products as, a, as opposed to, uh, to anybody else's. And uh, occasionally we'd have these big sales sort of get-togethers and the sales manager would give us an inspiring speech training um, telling us how wonderful the products were and, uh, and, and we all went out sort of buoyed up and, and ready to go with the excitement of being able to uh, go out and, and recommend to our brokers uh, what we had was the best thing since sliced bread. And, uh, Let's have a look at this passage, Matthew chapter 10. And I'm not for one minute saying that Jesus is any way a sales manager uh, in any sense of, the, of, of that, but he is or, you know, sort of talking to his sales team. But from a purely human point of view, he is giving them a pep talk before they go. And, but it's hardly a motivational speech, is it? At least at some points, anyway. I mean, he's brutally honest. He's absolutely honest and realistic, and he doesn't sugar the pill at all. He tells them that in the course of them going out, what to expect. He says, you'll be persecuted by the religious in society. Those people you'd expect to be most supportive of all are going to have you flogged in the synagogues. You're going to be brought before local authorities. You're going to be up before the government as well. They're going to oppose you, even kings. You're going to be arrested. And then it's not even safe in your own homes. Even your own families might turn against you. If you're persecuted in one place, you might have to flee to another like a refugee. They're going to be accused of being servants of the devil when they're in fact servants of God. And they may eventually lose their lives because of it. Not exactly a motivational speech, one might think. So why on earth would you agree to go knowing that all this potentially awaits you? Why on earth would you nail your colours to that particular mast, knowing the potential cost? Because 
The message that they were taking to a lost world is so crucially important, so radically life-changing, so eternally world-changing, so incredible, so crucial, not just in terms of this world, but also in terms of the next. Not just the one we can see, but the one we can't. A message that has the power over the last great enemy that we will face, each one of us, that enemy of death itself. A message that society then needed and society now needs. A message of a future and a hope. A message right from the throne room of the King of Kings himself that he has finally come, as he promised, to reach down to those willing to put their trust in him. Oh, friends, why would you go with those sorts of prospects? Because it's worth it. Because it's worth it. Because it's worth everything that the world can throw at us. Just telling them to go out and, and, and tell the world well, it, initially it was their own people. We'll come back to that in a second. To tell them that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven itself has drawn near. And they're being offered a part of it. I read a book, a book once that suggested a different approach to evangelism. It suggested asking people this question. If you knew that God was doing something in our town, would you want to be part of it? What if we ask ourselves that, that same question? Knowing that it might be inconvenient, it might cut across our preconceived ideas or disrupt our cosy life, and test our faith, our resolve, it might make us feel Uncomfortable, yes, might even involve suffering. But if you knew that God was in it, would you be part of it? Would you want to be part of it? The evidence of this new kingdom, as we see in these first few verses, the evidence is going to be the fact that the devil is going to be driven out and people's uh, diseases are going to be healed, illnesses are going to be healed. It's like the new kingdom is poking through. We were just before the service talking about how we see these crocuses and, uh, and the uh, little snowdrops poking through. This is signs of life poking through. And this, was the, this is what was going to be happening. This signs of the new life was, was going to be poking through, through these disciples, this new kingdom where there will be no diseases, where there will be no devil, when Jesus Christ finally comes to reign in glory at the end of all time. But this kingdom is starting to poke through. This new life is starting to poke through. It's like, I thought of it, it's like the sun is rising when it's been darkness for so long. Yes, there's been the occasional guy out there with a torch or a lantern, but the sun is rising and people's reactions will be different. Uh, some will, will close the curtains and rush inside and shut the door. 
but others will come out into the light and bask in the sunshine of God's kingdom. There's an inevitability of the coming of the kingdom of God, like the sun rising on its course. It's unstoppable, and our job is to go knocking on the doors and asking people to come out into the sunshine of God's grace and forgiveness. Before we sort of really dive into this passage, I want to look at a couple of things, because as it's being read, I don't know about you, but kind of, maybe it's just me. I always think of questions I always think, uh, oh, what does that really mean? Um, so, for example, why did Jesus just tell them to go to the Jews? What's that all about? Because surely the message is for everyone. Well, yes, of course, the message is for everyone. So why did Jesus just tell them to go to the Jews? And we see this with Paul, when he always went to the synagogue first to preach to the Jews and then out into the world when the Jews rejected it. Well, the Jews were meant to be God's people. They were meant to be God's mouthpiece to the world. They had all the history and the, and the prophets and the richness of the patriarchs and the symbols of God's redemption and God's power. Just as, uh, as you remember, you remember the two on the, road, on the road to Emmaus and Jesus explained to them all the things in the Old Testament. I'd love to have been there. Um, all the things in the Old Testament that were about him, that pointed to him. Not only that, but they'd seen, the, the Jewish people had seen God work before. They had the temple, the very presence of God, a symbol of God's presence amongst his people. Of all people, surely they would have the fullest understanding. Surely they would have the greatest faith built on the law and the prophets. Surely they would recognise God when he came. They must be given the first opportunity to receive the coming king. The opportunity to then be the ambassadors to the world. But whilst some turned to him, uh, like his disciples and, and others who believed the message, many of them rejected Jesus. Israel was meant to be God's ambassador to the world. That was his design for them all along. Israel was meant to be God's mouthpiece to society in general, to the, to the nations. That they had failed and now they rejected their Messiah and their King. This was last chance. This was last chance for them. And then Jesus goes on and he says, travel light. I don't know about you, but um, I'm a terror for putting too much in my case when I go on holiday. And then it's always such an effort. If you have to move hotels or, or youth hostels or campsites or whatever, it's a struggle to get it all back in again, isn't it? Maybe it's just me. I... I uh, so I actually have to write a list now with a number of t-shirts and the number of pairs of shorts because I know that I don't wear them all. Um, but they were told to travel light. 
so that they could be agile and move from place to place really quickly. Because the job was to get out and tell as many people as possible. And then they're told to find someone willing to accept the message, some worthy person willing to accept the message. Um, and they were going to stay with them. They had a... It, and if they didn't receive the message, if there was no one there willing, they were to shake the dust off their feet. And it says then that their judgment is going to be very harsh. Why was their judgment particularly harsh if they rejected the message? Well, it says in scripture that we are judged according to what we know. We're judged according to what we know. They knew a lot. As I said, they had the patriarchs, they had the prophets, they had the Old Testament law, everything pointing to this event, pointing to Jesus who had come. They had all of that. And still they rejected him. It says in Luke that... Um, it says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And we can apply that to ourselves, can't we? We've been given much, haven't we? We're in a church where God's word is preached. We understand it. We've been given much. And God says, I require much of you. always um, challenges me that verse in Proverbs that talks about being asleep during the harvest. God's given us the, the knowledge of the truth. Are we sharing it with those around us? Or are we content to kind of keep it to ourselves and have a nice time? And then he says we're going out as sheep among wolves. Jesus says, and then, and then he brings some other animals into the mix and says that we're to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. What's that about? Well, if we're shrewd only, then it'll be like we're schemers and, and, and trying to manipulate people into the kingdom of God. If we're innocent only, then maybe we're just naive and we're not aware of what's going on in the world. But we must be both shrewd, thinking about how we can most effectively reach those around us. Planning effective and strategically in our outreach. But also innocent. Without manipulation. Without craftiness. We must be careful to be above the accusation on that level. We must live authentic authentic Christian lives in front of a, uh, a very, very critical world. But as I mentioned already, we need to expect that things won't always go our way. Yes, the Lord blesses in his mercy, but it won't always go the way we want. We, we need to expect opposition from religious leaders. I, I'm going to tell you a story in a little while of, of somebody who, who 
experienced extreme opposition. But need to, we need to not worry about what to say in those circumstances. Because God the Father, we need to listen to him and hear what he is saying and speak out the truth. And then we come to verse 23. <clears throat> verse 23. Hmm, what's that about? It says, you won't finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Anybody any idea what that means? I, re I read quite a few commentaries um, varying opinions. Um, I think the conclusion I came to, because it has been kind of hotly debated, what, what does that mean? Um, I think it's talking about when the Son of Man, when, when Jesus comes in judgment, uh, which he did on the Jewish nation, particularly in AD 70, um, when, the, when the temple was destroyed by the Romans, and also in AD um, 135. Um, I'll, I'll read you what it says in Wikipedia about this, these events. It says it resulted in the extensive depopulation of the Judean communities. These were the communities that Jesus was sending the disciples out to. Extensive depopulation. Uh, more so than the devastation in AD 70. The Jewish communities of Judea uh, were devastated to the extent that some scholars described it as genocide. I wonder, was this the coming of the Son of Man that he was referring to? Jesus coming in judgment on that nation? I don't know. That's my best guess. I don't know. But we must press on. Let's... Uh, I didn't want to just kind of skip over that. It's so annoying when you read commentaries and they get to a really, really difficult verse and then they go on to the next one and you think, oh, come on. <laughs> anyway, I didn't want to be that person. Do, so Jesus says, did, did you know, so I, I don't wonder what the prospect of evangelism you know, brings to your heart. Is it a sense of trepidation? and fear I don't we all none of us like to be rejected do we that and I think in a, in, a, in a sense all of us fear rejection in some in some way or other especially when Jesus has talked about the world being quite hostile to our message but do you know what the most common command in the Bible is it's not do better at obeying my commands. It's not be more committed. It's not be obedient to my teaching. It's do not be afraid. Isn't that showing the heart compassion of God? He understands that we are afraid. We need to be real about that. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. But let's look at the interesting... He, it's, the reasons that he gives for not being afraid are quite interesting. They're kind of not what you'd expect. So firstly, he says, don't be afraid, in verse 26. He says, don't be afraid because 
Everything will be revealed in the end. It says that the fact that they have gone innocently to help, to proclaim the good news to the lost sheep, to find those who are lost, to, to, to rescue them by giving them this message, that they'd gone honestly and earnestly out of love for Jesus and for the world, would eventually be made known to all. Whatever they were falsely accused of would be seen as false, and the truth will be made known for all to see. From, from Donald Trump to Jeremy Paxman to Taylor Swift, I couldn't think of more random people, my next door neighbor, every knee will bow one day before the King of Kings. Everyone will see, everyone will see that we were ambassadors of the King of Kings. Everyone will see that one day, Jesus says. So take comfort from that. Secondly, he says, don't be afraid because God is a much bigger threat. That's an odd thing to say. God is a much bigger threat. God's a much bigger threat to this world the judgment that God, uh, of God that you and me as Christians are escaping is far worse than the judgment and persecution of men and women imposed upon us in this life. That's what he's saying. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And thirdly, he says... And this is kind of the one you would expect. He says, don't be afraid because God cares even for the tiny birds. Now, I know sparrows are almost rare nowadays. We, when I was a, a young lad, many moons ago, um, there was flocks of sparrows, weren't there? But they're, now they're not so many, but, but they're getting, it's getting better. But Jesus is talking in those times about the commonest birds. They're everywhere. Sparrows are everywhere in the towns and cities. And even the number of hairs on our head. Now, for me, that's not difficult to count. I probably could do it. But he's talking in general. So the hairs on our head. If Jesus is concerned about these tiny things... Aren't you far, far, far more valuable to him than those? Sometimes God does allow us to pay the price. We've been going through um, a series on John the Baptist in the, in the evenings at, at Millmead. And what happened to him? Of all people, he was... One of the most obedient, surely, in facing opposition and, and in proclaiming and getting God's people ready to receive Christ when he came. But God allowed him to lose his head. Just for Herod's pride at a party. So God sometimes does allow us to pay the price. But there are countless stories of 
rescues and escapes. I was, I was reading one this week about, um, uh, uh, there was a, a, a Western missionary in a South Asian city and um, he saw a cow being slaughtered in front of a mosque during a Muslim festival. And he stopped his car and took a few pictures and, and drove home. Um, and that night, the Holy Spirit began to challenge him to be less of a tourist and more a missionary. And I wonder when we're on holiday, whether that might be a challenge that God brings to us. It was directed by the Holy Spirit to start praying and fasting and to return to the scene of the sacrifice and to be a witness to the greater sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. So in the steaming monsoon heat the next day, he set off with his shoulder bag full of tracts and gospels to the same place in the bazaar near the mosque. That day, having sold and distributed much literature, he felt well satisfied that when he returned home that he'd done his duty. But the Holy Spirit impressed on him that night that he was to continue praying and fasting and to return and repeat the process in the same place the next day. Night after night, as the missionary prayed, the Holy Spirit repeated his instruction to this obedient servant. It didn't take long before local opposition started to form and even threaten his life. He was dragged through the marketplace, doused in dye, kicked, pushed into a ditch, even stoned on one occasion. Twice a fanatic tried to kill him with a dagger, but his own people restrained them. Finally, two well-trained rabble-rousers were appointed to stop his witnessing. They approached him directly, warning him that, should he return again, he wouldn't leave the bazaar alive. So on the 40th day of his supernaturally sustained period of fasting and prayer, directed by what the Holy Spirit was saying, he bade farewell to his wife for what he thought was the last time. He set out once more with his literature to sell and distribute at the bazaar. No sooner had he arrived than the appointed crowd conductors also showed up. They tore up his gospels, scattered his tracts, and began to incite the crowd to watch the spectacle. Soon they were calling for his death. Then the, move, then the men moved to grab him. But two unusually tall strangers <clears throat> appeared, spearing a pass through the crowd, which was now calling for the missionary's blood. They grabbed him and in one swift move, removed him from the crush of the people and took him down an alley, at the end of which was waiting a bicycle rickshaw. Amazingly, no one had followed them. Placing the missionary in the rickshaw, one of the strangers said to him, It's enough now. Don't come back. God had sent messengers to save his servant. 
That night the Lord spoke once more, saying, Now you know how much I love and care for Muslims. It's not my will that any of them should perish without hearing the message of salvation. With no other tangible resources other than the practice of sustained prayer and fasting, that missionary went on to be used by God to build what became one of the largest churches in a somewhat hostile environment. <clears throat> God does rescue his people. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he allows us to share in the sufferings of Christ. We need to be subject to his will. To say, whatever happens, Lord, I'm willing to serve you, to follow you. These are hard words, aren't they? Easy to say, difficult to do. Next, in verse 32, Jesus goes on to exhort us, like this missionary, not to be ashamed of him. It's interesting that he says, he doesn't say whoever acknowledges the kingdom before men, but he says whoever acknowledges me before men. He's talking about himself. If it was anyone else, that would sound really arrogant, wouldn't it? You just imagine somebody saying that to you. It's all about me. But Jesus says that anyone who says that they are aligned to him, anyone who says that they are serving Christ, anyone who does these things will be honoured by the Father in heaven. It's just interesting, when I talk to people about God, um, out in a, I, had, I had an occasion the other day, I was in the swimming pool changing room, and I said to the Lord, I will share the gospel with the next person that comes through the door. Don't do this. <laughs> it was the male changing rooms, and in walked a woman. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. I was so taken aback that I didn't share the gospel with her, which I felt guilty afterwards. I was just kind of surprised that she was there. Anyway. <clears throat> uh, what was I saying? Oh, yes. You... People are quite happy to talk about God, aren't they? In a kind of nebulous, kind of distant, impersonal way. When you mention the name of Jesus, somehow things change. The conversation atmosphere suddenly changes. Have you noticed that? I certainly have. We need to get to the point of talking about Jesus. Yes, I know we need to address people's concerns. We need to, um, you know, help them understand some of the other aspects. But eventually, eventually, we need to get to the center of things. We need to get to be talking about Jesus. He's the watershed that divides opinions. As I say, people are quite happy to talk about God. I love the sign that used to be above the old um, uh, gospel halls that says, uh, what think ye of Christ? What think ye of Christ? Do you want to know the difference between true religion and counterfeit? Just ask them what they think of Jesus. 
Is he the son of God? Did he die as the only way, the only sacrifice for sins? Can we add to it somehow? Did he die and rise again physically? What think ye of Christ? That's the center of the gospel. He is the center of the gospel. And Jesus says that we shouldn't be ashamed to speak his name. To speak his name. Lastly, Jesus sets the bar very high. He says, love for me must trump everything. Every other relationship must be subservient to Christ, to our relationship with Christ. These are the hard yards, aren't they? That's not to say in any way that we should neglect our family. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, anyone who does not care for his own family is worse than an unbeliever. Jesus is not saying that at all. He is saying that when it comes to it, when there's a choice to be made, he must come first. And often that will result in family conflict. Uh, once, uh, I'll just share this in closing, but once I was, uh, whether this conversation was in my mind or in the, kitchen, in the kitchen with God or whether it was just in my head, I have no idea. Sometimes these things happen and I'm never certain whether they're from God or whether, whether they're just kind of our, our heads playing things through. But I'll, I'll share it with you anyway. I, I can remember I was stand. I can remember exactly. I was standing there in the kitchen, uh, just kind of minding my own business, and felt God say to me, "I think." And I, I was. I had a young family at that point. Um, they were all kind of youngsters, below that height. Um, and I felt God say, "If." If they were up, if your family were up before the firing squad and you were asked, deny me or they get it, what would you do? And I, I was really shocked that that thought was even in my head, let alone that God might even ask me. And I cried out to God, God, you're not going to put me in that situation. Why ask such a ridiculous question? Why would you even go there? And I just felt the response as clear as a day. He said, I asked Abraham and he chose me. And then if I wasn't devastated enough at that point, he went on to say, I had the choice between you and my own son, and I chose you. But Jesus says, in choosing him above all else, in laying down our lives in this way, in saying, Jesus, I choose to follow you no matter what. 
I'm willing to be your ambassador, an ambassador for the King of Kings to this world, no matter what the cost. In doing so, Jesus says, we will find life. Life for our souls. And anyone, he says, anyone who shows you even the tiniest kindness, and giving a glass of water was the tiniest kindness in, in Jewish literature. It's something everybody would, would do for you. Even the tiniest kindness will be rewarded because you're so important in God's kingdom. What a privilege it is to serve the living God by proclaiming his message loud and clear. The world tells us to shut up. The world tells us you've got nothing to say, but we need to carry on persevering and pleading with those around us to repent and be forgiven, to become part of this new and everlasting kingdom. No matter how hard, no matter how unrewarding, no matter how many times we're rejected or rebuffed, we must persevere to the end and then receive those words that we long to hear from the lips of Jesus as we enter glory. Well done, well done, good and faithful servant. May Jesus send his Holy Spirit to enable us to be fearless ambassadors, not to be afraid. And wherever we find ourselves, May we never be ashamed to name the name of Jesus and to share the wonderful news that we carry in our hearts to a lost and increasingly confused world. And in all this, may he, the one we love, Jesus Christ, have all the glory. Amen. Amen. I think we're going to see